With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the virtual meeting at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Denise Michaud, Chair of the Grown-Ups Forum, and it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker today, James Boswick. James has been a trial lawyer in San Francisco for over 40 years and long been on the list of the top 100 uh, lawyers, trial lawyers in the United States. He specializes in catastrophic injuries, and he obtained the largest medical malpractice verdict in U.S. history. And that brings us to his book that he's going to be talking with us about today, his new novel, which is his first novel, Acts of Omission. And it's been inspired by a San Francisco trial in the 80s. So thank you so much for being here, James. And you've got the floor now. Thank you, Denise. Thank you very much. So here we are in this strange time. Uh, I am talking to you from my living room uh, with a sky that is so dark outside you'd think a storm was coming, but it's just smoke. A very unusual time we're living in. Fires everywhere and, um, and a pandemic. I haven't worn a suit since March. I put it on just because I felt like dressing up, uh, working from home like so many. Lawyers aren't essential, and boy, we, we really aren't. Uh, those folks out there that are taking care of us and taking care of everyone, those are the essential folks. And I know all of us have such a, a remarkable appreciation for them, what they do. I'm here to talk about uh, acts of omission. It's an interesting story how it came to be. I'm told that it is now uh, a bestseller. I'm not quite sure what that means, but I'm told that uh, it now qualifies as a bestseller. And happily, the hardbound edition is completely sold out. Uh, the first edition is now gone. Uh, we just published the paperback version. Uh, it just came out about a month ago. And of course, it's mostly sold in bookstores. Uh, and most of the bookstores, unfortunately, uh, are closed or having difficulty operating nowadays. Uh, although it's... Uh, it's doing very well. The Audible version has really taken off. It's remarkable. Uh, there are close to 450 reviews, and almost 400 of them are five-star and four-star reviews. Uh, I, I, I have to give a huge shout-out to the author, uh, Roger Wayne, who did a, uh, the author, the, the, the reader, uh, who's an actor, and did a marvelous job of reading the book. And you know, went way past what the author managed to accomplish. And this year, the book was nominated for the 2020 Harper Lee uh, Legal Fiction Award. It's, uh, it's been a, a, a tremendous honor. Actually, finally, we are in the process of signing a contract with a movie producer and a very famous screenwriter to bring the book to the big screen. Now, nowadays, uh, big screen, maybe, 
I don't know. Uh, maybe it'll be uh, a miniseries. Maybe it'll be on Netflix. Maybe it'll be uh, something that we don't see in there. Who knows if we're going to have big screens? Uh, our life is uh, very different, isn't it? So they're going to make a movie out of it. And, uh, and we'll see where we get to see it. By the way, there's an interesting story about the cover of the book. Uh, you can see it, of course, is there's a Golden Gate Bridge in the background. And this is a place uh, many of you probably are Bay Area folks, so you'll know where Cressy Field is. My wife, who's a photographer, and I went out one morning about 5.30, 6 o'clock, and we caught a wonderful sunrise. And we took a picture of the bridge and the water with this beautiful shine of the sunrise from behind us. And then a week later, I was in Montana, and I saw the most fabulous sky as the storm was coming in, and I got a, a picture of that. And I went to a marvelous artist here in San Francisco and asked him to put that sky over our bridge, and that became the book cover. And where Marty was, my wife was standing when we took the picture, I said, make that a runner all by himself on the beach, uh, which of course is a metaphor for the story. First, I thought I would sort of talk about the genesis of, of writing the book. And by the way, this is this, I've, I've given talks about the book, but this is very strange because you're at home, I presume, I'm at home, I'm talking to a screen, you're looking at a screen, and normally when I give this talk, I am talking to people. I can, I'm a trial lawyer. I spend my life out there talking to people and interacting with them and seeing the looks on their faces and seeing their body language and seeing what interests them and what doesn't. It's very different when you're talking to a screen and that has a lovely picture of Denise on it, uh, but nothing alive. So the only thing alive on my screen is me, and uh, that's not very uh, inspiring. I love to write, but I write briefs. Uh, I've written briefs my whole life as a lawyer, and uh, you know I, I'm pretty good at it, but I've never written anything creative, uh, except a brief can be creative. Uh, some of the judges think I'm being very creative. Yeah, I love to read. Uh, I, I'm a voracious reader. I read all kinds of things. I've, I've read my whole life. Normally, of course, I like legal books. I like legal fiction. Um, I, but they're all uh, about criminal cases. When, uh, and society has a lot of, that we all learn from seeing a criminal case. That's great. That's interesting. Rarely is it about civil lawyers. Rarely is it about the kind of thing that, you know, there, there are many lawyers that do criminal work, but uh, 80, 90% of the lawyers out there that are doing trial work are actually doing civil work. And it's not usually about those of us that do that. And also the thing that always bothered me, irritated me when I read the book, I understand it, but it was so unrealistic. It's not the way the law is practiced. It's not what happens in court. It's not what happens with your clients. And uh, that always bothered me. So, I mean, and of course it creates when they do talk about civil lawyers, they're usually talking about bad stereotypes. 
we, we've all know about the ambulance chaser stereotype. And of course that's amusing and it's interesting once in a while, but in fact, and there are people like that, like in any profession, there are people that uh, we, we would rather have somewhere else. But in reality, 95% of the lawyers out there doing civil work are working very hard. They're passionate. They're interested in trying to accomplish something for their clients. Um, they're taking care of businesses that are in desperation. They're taking care of, of families. They are taking care of people that are injured. And most people, we don't, all of us think of ourselves as victims. We, we uh, worry about if we ever got uh, in a criminal situation, but most of us don't think about ourselves as victims. If something does happen to us or somebody in our family or a loved one, we don't know anything about that. Good civil lawyers, they're, that work they do is very high risk. It's very expensive. Uh, they're usually, most of us are crusading personalities. Uh, we're very passionate about what we do. And you don't see that in the books. So one day my wife, who probably got tired of me complaining about that, said, look, stop complaining. Um, why don't you write your own damn novel? And I said, oh, no, I'm, I'm not a writer. You know, she said, yeah, you're a good writer. But she said, why don't, you know, I, I signed us up for a novel class. I signed us up at the university and we're gonna go. And by gosh, uh, we went and uh, our instructor, Barbara Rose Brooker, a marvelous novelist and a wonderful professor of creative writing, 28 years ago, sat down with us in, in a class of maybe 30 people all wanting to write their first novel. And, and at the end of about an hour, she actually said to us, okay, now I want you to pull out your paper and your pen and I want you to write the first paragraph of your novel. Whoa, we, we all went, goodness, we didn't think we would, we would have to do that on the first day of class, but we did. And, and it's interesting, and we had to read it to each other afterwards, which is quite interesting. And it, it's kind of fascinating, but actually that first paragraph that I wrote in that class 28 years ago, pretty much is the first paragraph of the book today. Um, why could I write 28 years ago? Well, because my wife and I had just had a daughter. She went to bed early, a new baby, uh, had already eaten. I had the evening free and I wrote in the evening. And I wrote, and I wrote, I wrote, gosh, maybe two thirds of it. And then our other daughter was born and she did not go to sleep at night. And that was the end of the writing. So two thirds into it, the book went back uh, uh, on the shelf in the computer. And that's a funny story too, sitting there in the computer, don't lose your hard drive, back it up. But there it sat. And maybe 10 years ago, I said to myself, <laughs> my 28 year old daughter and my 26 year old daughter, uh, maybe when they, the 26 year old was 16, I said, why I have a book that is two thirds done, I need to finish it. That was kind of crazy. So I did. I sat down and actually, and I finished the book. And then I said to myself, okay, now what? I have a book. 
what am I going to do with it? I had people read it. They liked it. They had ideas. We did a little editing. It just sat there. Uh, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to find an agent. I didn't know uh, how to find a publisher. And I'm, uh, you know, a full-time busy trial lawyer. So I'm back. I uh, really never stopped doing that. Then I, a client of mine, a former client that had heard about it, said, can I read your book? And I was a little nervous about that because he is a movie producer, guy in Hollywood. I had represented, he had a brain damaged child from birth injury and I, he got very involved when we did the discovery, took the depositions of the doctors and the nurses. And he was quite fascinated with the process. We became friends and uh, he said, I want to read it. So I gave it to him with trepidation. Well, four years went by. And I thought, okay, he hated it, obviously. He didn't want to call and tell me that. You know, I understand. And then one day, not too long ago, he called me up and he said, I finally read the damn book. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. I want to make a movie out of it. He said, uh, my favorite movie and book of all time for, for legal fiction is The Verdict. Barry Reed wrote that, and uh, of course, Paul Newman starred in it. And he said, this is like that. He said, I like this. I can, we can make a great movie out of this. But he said, we got to get you published. I said, well, how do we do that? And he said, I got to find you some agents. And he did. He went out and got a couple agents, one in, in L.A., who, you know, is, a, you know, he's not, he's a, he just represents somebody like called Michael Conley, you know, I don't know. Um, and another guy in New York, uh, and they, uh, Tom Clancy is, he works with Tom Clancy or somebody like that. Um, anyway, they were pretty well-known, very good agents. And so then we started working to see if we could get it published, editing, things like that. Well, what, what happened then was that we went to 10 publishers and they all said no. My agent called me up and he said, Jim, this is a great book. But he said, you know, I got to tell you, you're a new author. Nobody knows you. It's 550 pages long. They don't want to publish a book that's 550 pages long. It's expensive. It's too expensive. You're unknown. Uh, if you had a big name, fine. If you were somebody famous, your name is not Obama. We got to cut it. I said, well, we'll cut it. He said, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. We need to cut at least 100 pages out of it. I said, well, I didn't, you know, trust me, we'll have a better shot. So I sat down. He said, I, I, I know. He said, it's like asking you to kill your baby. And it is because, of course, you think everything you wrote is just perfect. Uh, and of course, it's not. And in reality, when you go through objectively, there are things that don't need to be there. There are things you liked that were interesting that really don't bring a thing to the table. So then with friends and my wife, who is a cutthroat editor and uh, made some extremely good uh, comments, uh, which I've learned to listen to, uh, I cut a hundred pages out of it. And I must say that was the best thing that ever happened because it cut the fat out. It made it move faster. It got started faster. It got moving. And the next publisher we took it to said, we'll take it, we'll publish it. And we were on our way. That 
was a very interesting process. So what's the book about? Back in the 80s, I tried a, an interesting, kind of fascinating case. Uh, took about nine weeks to try. Uh, and it's very loosely, very loosely based on that case. And that gives it the structure. But it's highly fictionalized version of that case. The book is about a, a wonderful young man who became paralyzed when he was 16 uh, in a tragic accident and a struggling family. And they were having such a hard time taking care of him. And it, it turned out that the, he didn't need to be paralyzed. Uh, there was, we thought, medical malpractice in his, in his care. Uh, and the book basically talks about that, but it takes off from there. And, and the interesting thing is that it wasn't just a medical malpractice case, but it's also about a lawyer, not, not the lawyer that tries it, not the lawyer that is the protagonist in the book, but it's about the lawyer that represented him first and who failed him, who did not find out that there was medical malpractice, let the statute of limitations run, and who had to be sued. So it's a legal malpractice case about a medical malpractice case. Uh, the problem is that, that the lawyer that had to be sued is probably the most famous lawyer in the country, loved by everybody in the public because he was, and uh, the media is crazy about him, always good for a great quote, a San Francisco icon, someone that had all the resources uh, and was a very difficult person for a young lawyer to take on, a young lawyer that was barely holding it together. That's what the book is about. The, I'm not telling you that's what the case was. I'm telling you that's what acts of omission is about. Acts of omission is basically a David and Goliath story. But more than that, it's a San Francisco story. It's a Bay Area story. It's, a, it's your town, those of you that are in the Bay Area. It's uh, your characters. It's your history. That's what it's about. And for those of you that have been around long enough to remember some of these folks, or around in the 80s, you will recognize some uh, pretty interesting characters. Definitely the novel is fiction, but its structure and its inspiration is, uh, was based on that wonderful family uh, and, and that case. You might be curious, as I talk about all this is, you know, who am I, uh, who am I and you know, where did I come from and all that. Uh, I went to law school at Hastings Grew up in Southern California, actually down in Imperial Valley, which is not only a pandemic hotspot, the pandemic hotspot, unfortunately, right now, but also uh, one of the hottest places. It was 127 uh, Sunday. I know I looked up. Uh, then I then I grew up in the San Diego area, went off to uh, the University of Washington, and came to Hastings here in San Francisco, where I I went to school during the summer of love, and. I've only done trial work my entire career. I was lucky to uh, start with a firm that did trial work. I gravitated to uh, cases involving medical malpractice because I was my, I was a pre-med student. I loved medicine. Uh, my father was a doctor and my mother was a nurse. And so I've only done trial practice. I, I do it all over the state of California. I do it in other states, uh, many actually most of my cases come from other lawyers. They, they bring my firm, they bring me in because we're specialists. 
and we come in and to prepare and try the cases. Uh, I'm a member of the bar in Hawaii and in California, and I work kind of all over. Still working full time, and as a contingent trial lawyer, I'm only paid if I win. That's the, the nature of the beast. I'm married, five kids, uh, now live in Marin since, uh, since the uh, rents went up in the city, we moved out. And now, of course, unfortunately, the city is a ghost town. It might be interesting for you to hear about uh, the process, writing. Uh, many times when I give these talks, that's one of the things people ask about is, well, what is the process like, particularly for a lawyer who has only written briefs? Although, you know, when you write a brief, you've still got to tell a story. The judge still has to be interested. You still have to tell a story. And so that kind of gets you into the process of telling a story. Not the same, however, as creative writing. The, the way I went at it, uh, I didn't use an outline. Many people have to use an outline, and many people do better with an outline. I didn't. Uh, maybe because I had the structure of a case so I had the outlines, the bare bones of some things that had happened, some things that kept me to a certain uh, start and beginning and end. Uh, but for me, I just felt it was better if I just just let it out there into the into the computer, into the pages, and let it go. I found that like exercise, uh, it has to become a habit. Uh, you have to do it every day. I mean, you can have a day off you take, and you obviously, when I'm in trial, I didn't, because trial is a 24-7 thing. When you're not in trial, you need to do every day, you need to spend a few hours, and for me, it was in the evening, uh, at first when my daughter was uh, finally to bed. What I would do is I would, I would read what I'd done the night before, uh, and when I did that, I'd find oh, it wasn't as brilliant as I thought it was. Uh, wow, it needs work. And I would start editing and I would change it. I would fix things and I would, and that would get the juices flowing. That would get things moving. Then I would hit the end of what I'd done the night before and it would just flow right on into writing uh, for another hour or two. And then I would go over that same process the next night. The momentum builds that way. One of the things that I found very, very fascinating about the writing process is, well, it takes over your life. Uh, when you're writing these characters, and they're highly fictionalized, these are people that are made up, uh, even though it was loosely based on a case I tried, the, pic the most of the characters are total fiction. Uh, and, but they start having a life, they have a life of their own and you find yourself in the shower and, uh, you know, sleeping, waking up and dreaming about them in the shower, thinking about what, what's going to happen to, how's Matt going to do, what Matt going to do next? And then you stop and you think, wait a minute, Matt is a creation of yours. I mean, you can tell Matt what to do next, but that isn't what happens. Matt begins to do things out of your fingers in the process of writing, Matt starts coming alive. He starts doing things. Other people start doing things you never imagined that they would do. 
And this story goes off in ways that you hadn't even envisioned. envisioned. And that's fascinating. That's a wonderful part of the process. That's when I think the creative writing process comes alive for me. That's when the characters become alive. And I think, I have a feeling uh, that in the books we like, the books I read that I really like, I have a feeling that's what has happened with those writers. I think that those characters have developed a life of their own. And I, I found that quite fascinating. You might ask, well, what might you gain by reading the book? I mean, what would it have to offer you? It's fun. It's got romance. Uh, it's got novel stuff and danger and betrayal and all those things uh, that are wonderful in fiction and make novels fun. But mostly what it is, is a very, very real, I think. And, and this book has been read by many of the most famous civil and criminal trial lawyers in the country. And that's been the comment that they have made to me happily because it was my goal. This is real. This is what it's really like. This is what it means to be a lawyer. This is what it means to be compassionate about what you do. And this is what makes trial lawyers tick. I, I wanted to show what inspires uh, uh, crazy crusaders like, uh, like me and other people out there, what motivates us, what scares us, uh, how we think, how does the legal process work? What really happens in court? Uh, why do people do what they do? And yet at the same time, make it fun and interesting, uh, not pedantic. Um, and that's what I hoped to accomplish. Uh, and in the end, then you learn about the thinking of a lawyer and the process the lawyer goes through and the risks and the conflicts and the, the, the terrible uh, conflict you can get in between the interest of your client and the interest of you and your family and your life uh, and how in the world you resolve those. And then what happens when you try a case? But at the end, it's also not um, just that, not just what it's really like in the law, but it's intended and meant to be something that is totally understandable to a lay person. I hope if you uh, do decide to read the book, uh, that you enjoy it, uh, that you, that it does give you something, that it gives you something interesting that you maybe didn't know. And if so, I hope you tell your friends about it. Uh, maybe write a review. In this world, especially today, when the bookstores are mostly closed, uh, it's uh, word of mouth. Word of mouth is everything. Uh, and happily, that is happening. Um, I'm at the point, Denise, where I've pretty much reached the end of what I was going to say. And I can normally, at this point, what I would do is I would ask the audience if they would like me to read uh, the book a little bit, uh, maybe 10 minutes or so, and then we could have questions. Um, but I usually read the first chapter because it doesn't give too much away. San Francisco, 
1984. The trial was over. Matt stared at the implacable gray wall in front of him, unwilling to turn the ignition key and break the stunned silence that had followed him from the battered courtroom to the empty garage. It was remarkable how quiet it could get when a jury said no to parents who had lost their only child. Matt couldn't exercise the expression on the faces of his clients when the verdict was read. They were completely shattered. There was nothing Matt could do to ease their pain. Now they had to put their lives back together and he had to find a way to pay the rent. Jamie had been alive when Jim and Mary Olson first came to talk with him about the drug that had destroyed their son's liver. Their doctor had received no warning from the manufacturer that the medication he ordered for Jamie had previously caused the death of several children. In Matt's office, the little guy had been so excited about riding in a genuine cable car. After two years of Matt beating his head against the company corporate brick wall, the case finally got to trial. By then, Jamie had died. Matt never had the chance to give him the model cable car he bought him for his seventh birthday. On the eve of trial, the pharmaceutical giant finally made a reasonable offer. Matt had advised his clients to settle. Mary would have been happy to have the case over, but Jim wanted retribution. Matt pulled out all the stops to give them the justice they deserved. His clients had depended on him and he'd lost. His stomach twisted. He hated to lose and he knew this case would continue to haunt him. Scenes from the trial were gonna replay in his head forever. Losses left a void that his victories never quite filled. Five o'clock, Emily, his office manager would be anxious for him to get back to the office. He needed to deal with a pile of work and clients who had felt neglected during the trial. He thumbed through a stack of papers Emily had given him to go through. Anything to take his mind off what had just happened. It's mostly bills, of course. He saw a circled note about some new case she wanted him to call a lawyer about. She had underlined the words game changer. Yeah, right. He'd heard that before. He turned the key and the blazer jumped to life. He headed home to change his clothes. Work could wait. He needed a dose of the bridge. Matt parked next to the St. Francis Yacht Club. He stretched by the seawall, savoring the panorama and acrid tang of the moist air. The pastel city cascaded down the hillside to meet White Cap Bay. Fleets of sailboats wheeled around their marks, their crisp Dacron sails thundering in rapid succession. The competitors heeled close hauled into the northwesterly gale. They angled toward the Golden Gate Bridge, its massive columns silhouetted by shafts of sunlight. Further down the beach, sailboats ginned between the racers and the ferryboats, 
a kaleidoscope of dorsal fins dodging back and forth across the wind. A tendril of fog extended under the bridge, tentatively testing the resolve of the warm afternoon. All around him, people were running, walking, or bicycling to and from the distant towers. The balmy weather had obviously put a serious dent in the city's afternoon workforce. He felt the darkness coiled within him gradually begin to release as he ran toward the dying sun. He recognized runners and walkers he literally only knew in passing. Most runners, he had noticed, acknowledged only other runners, and walkers, other walkers. Seldom did crossbreed socialization occur. Their dogs were more egalitarian. A running pad, pun, magazine pundit had once opined that this stretch of beach had more beautiful women per mile than anywhere except Malibu. Today, Matt could almost believe it. Running through the pain of three exercise-free weeks of trial, he gradually became anesthetized by his surging endorphins. Near the end of his run, he saw his favorite fantasy approaching. He'd first noticed her a few months ago. She usually wore shapeless winter sweats. First, he almost didn't recognize her in the colorful lycra. It's 1984. A large brim running hat pulled low over sunglasses couldn't quite conceal her prominent cheekbones, smooth olive skin and elegant nose. He smiled at her as she passed, but for not, she acknowledged no one as she ran, uh, at least never him. Well, given the reality of his life, why should she? He was a divorced father, close to 40, with more gray hair than he would like. He hadn't been in a serious relationship since his marriage. He'd cobbled together a reasonably successful law practice, but he always seemed to be on the edge financially. Now that he'd lost this case, he was going to be well over that edge. Matt collapsed on the grass. As his breathing quieted, he stared across at the uninhabited headlands, rising serenely above the bay. His dream in going to law school and represented injured people had been to make a real difference. He'd been so ambitious, so ready to take on the world. Now the only thing he cared about in his life was his son. Maybe he was just really tired. Matt decided his fantasy runner should be a model or an actress. He wanted her to love the mountains as much as he did. Perhaps she also had studied ballet, loved dogs, cooked Cajun cuisine as a hobby, and was a class five whitewater kayaker. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, with his luck, she was probably married, had several kids, and hated lawyers. Matt let himself into his apartment, poured a pitcher of water, and dropped into his favorite chair on the deck. The gray mantle was just starting to win its daily skirmish for control of the bay. In the misty twilight, he could just make out the blurgeony lights in the flats of the marina district below. He let the gusting air cool him down from his run. After a shower, he hit the button on his answering machine. Most of the calls were predictable. A few friends checking up on him, call from Lena, the woman he'd been seeing, and the standard four calls from his ex-wife, Susan, worrying about money and their son Grant's schedule. Uh, there was also a message from Emily. 
Hi, Matthew. That verdict was bull. I think it was that squinty-eyed accountant they picked as foreman. A ringer. I know you're thinking about running away. Don't, or our house of cards will tumble, for sure. We knew it was tough. You did everything you could, and then some. The air pent up in his chest escaped slowly as he listened. Don't forget to call Fred Stadol. He called a bunch during the trial and said he was anxious to talk to you about a dynamite new case. I left you a note about it, but I know you never read those. He was being sort of mysterious about it, said his number, his home number's listed in Marin County. Well, see you in the morning. Matt stared at the floor for a moment as the machine recycled. It's 84 machines. He wanted today to be over, but he should call the man and at least accomplish something positive. Stadel answered on the first ring. Matt, how the hell are you? Damn sorry, by the way, I heard your case didn't go so well. Matt never failed to be surprised at the efficacy of the trial lawyer gossip network. They're about as bad as it can go, but then it's always a roll of the dice. Ain't that right? You can't predict them. Leave anything on the table? Drug company offered $250,000 to settle just before trial. Hell, the case could have gone into seven figures. No wonder you went for it. Yeah, well, thanks, but what the hell? That number looks pretty good right now. Matt sat slumped, his head resting on the back of the chair. How's it going for you? I heard things have been a little rough lately. Fucking understatement. You hear what that asshole Sal Conti did to me? Law partners for 10 years. He locks me out of the office. I'm talking personal papers, photos of the kids, not to mention my files. Had to get a goddamn court order and get the files so I could represent my clients. Good Lord. Man's really out of control. Then hasn't he always been? You called the prince a personal injury and the newspapers love you, I guess you think you can call the shots. Stadol growled in agreement. Yeah, I like that young lawyer I met back east during that huge case. Hired the kid away from another firm on the spot. Poor bastard sold his house, moved his wife and kids to San Francisco to go to work for the world-famous Salvatore Kant. Oh, shit, yeah, I think I remember that. Guy shows up for work Monday morning, and Sal throws him out in the street. Says he changed his mind. Go back to Boston, he said. Got my own damn problems, he says. Uh, the cold son of a bitch. I guess you can't say you weren't forewarned, can you? Think you can work things out with him? Nope. Dogfight all the way. And he owns his town, courts, and the media. They both thought about that in silence. Well, enough about my problems. I was calling to see if you'd be interested in handing a case I took with me when I left. You're not handling it yourself? Matt's curiosity was piqued. Most of Matt's case came to him by referral from the attorneys who were not real trial specialists, but Stato was a trial lawyer. He could try the case himself. Why offer it to Matt? I can't handle it because I'll probably be a witness. Fred got right to the point. This may not be the best time to talk about a new case, but I had to find this client a lawyer soon because the statute of limitations is about to run. Fred, if the statute's about to expire, there won't be much time to investigate. I just lost a case, remember? I can't risk jumping into a case with time problems. Look, I never sent you a case before, but I always figured you were the one I'd go to if my family had a problem. 
These people really need help, Matt. Matt pinched the bridge of his nose with his fingers. What kind of a case is it, Fred? There was a brief pause on the other end. It's a malpractice case. Client's a young man that lives in San Diego. He was hurt in a crash and the hospital missed the diagnosis. Oh, okay, well, that doesn't sound so complicated. What's our time problem and how bad was he hurt? Now they cut to the chase, Matt. I'm talking about a legal malpractice case. Stadol took a deep breath. The kid's paralyzed. And the defendant is Salvatore Conti. So, you know, this is your first novel. It's pretty good that it's a bestseller and going to be made into a novel, uh, a movie. Um, and I'm sure people are, are watching you and they feel like they have a book in them too. What do you think um, went right for you in terms of getting this book so being so popular and to be a movie? Well, I was very lucky for one thing, to have a wife that pushed me into it, uh, to have a wonderful family and friends that helped edit it, great agent. And, uh, and my movie producer friend, if it hadn't been for him, uh, is no way. I mean, this is such a hard thing to do. Uh, not, you know, the writing, yeah, writing is difficult, but getting a book written is one thing, getting it out there, getting uh, that's, I'm very, very lucky. Uh, and uh, I, I'm lucky that I have good friends. I have, uh, have some people that pushed it and, uh, you know, and, and lucky that people liked it. Uh, they, uh, but for those people out there that are thinking, yeah, could I do it? Yeah. If I could do it, you definitely can. I mean, uh, and, and even if, you know, maybe it does, maybe it goes somewhere, maybe it doesn't, but the, the creative process is wonderful. It's fascinating, you know, and it's something different. Yeah, so it took 28 years, then four years of waiting for this person to call back. Obviously, it's worth it, I'm sure. But what would, would you have done something differently? It's, well, you know, it, for me, it worked out. Uh, but I think that it's very unusual. I mean, who takes 28 years to write a book? I mean, it's a very unusual thing to have those kinds of things inter come in in between. I would, I would keep going. Uh, if, if you get going, you want to keep going. And, and I think that that helps a lot. And I think that you got to, the people that I know out there that are writing, uh, they're contacting me, they're contacting other people, they're getting all the help and ideas they can, and they're keeping the iron in the fire. And I didn't, and I'm, I'm just damn lucky uh, uh, that it's, it's come to fruition at this stage. Uh, and, and that's what I would do differently. I would keep going. Now, what does your um, instructor, Barbara Rose Brooker, think of you? Oh, we're, we're buddies. She's great. She is. I, I, I think she's a marvelous writer. She's got, uh, she had Goldie Hawn set up to play her in, in, a, in a movie, on, on a book she wrote called The Viagra Diaries, a fabulous book. Uh, and of course, Hollywood did what Hollywood does. And so she wrote another book about that called Love Sometimes. It's a marvelous book, and it talks about Hollywood. And boy, I now am experiencing the Hollywood folks, and that's just a different world. Well, so we have a question. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, from the audience. She wanted to, she's asking, um, could you expand on the ways working as a trial lawyer helped you shape this mystery and thriller? 
I, I think that it helps because, um, well, many, many people that write books that are really good at it have to do a huge amount of research uh, to write about areas that they don't happen to be familiar with from their own life. And they do marvelous research and they, it's amazing what they can produce. Um, but it's never, I don't think, I don't think it's quite the same as if you've lived it. And I think what helped me here was I was writing about a passion. I'm lucky. I, I fell into, I never planned to be a trial lawyer. I didn't even know what a trial lawyer was when I was going to Hastings. I was going to go to get an MBA and do business or something. I don't know. I, but trial work is, became my life and I love it. And I love, I, I don't just love the process. I do love the process, uh, but I also love what we can accomplish for people. Because there are so many people out there that really don't have anybody out there to fight for them. And we can make a difference in a life. And that kind of knowledge and how you get there and all the years of experience that I have, and I say over 40, but it's a, it's a lot more than that. Um, I'm well, well into my 70s. And, and that brings a lot to the table when you're, when you're writing about uh, what you do and what you love. Uh, and you're trying to keep it real. You were mentioning that your colleagues read it, some of your colleagues, and they said, yes, this is very real. And can you give us an example or two of what, what you mean by that? Like what is, you know, where, you know, you've, you said some TV series, other books are, are, you know, don't really represent the reality of what's going on. Well, well, especially when you're on TV, and especially, you know, in a in a, uh, uh, in a movie, I mean, those folks are having to take. I mean, my book's 450 pages long. It has to be crammed into a two-hour movie. I mean, there's going to have to be a lot left out. You can't do a nine-week trial in a two-hour movie. So it has to be truncated. But when you bring it down, and I had to truncate a nine-week trial into a book so that people would not give up in exhaustion and. I, I had to make it interesting to read. So I have to leave a lot of things out. But the key is when you are writing about what actually happens, you have to, you have, it shouldn't take shortcuts there. You have to talk about what is real. And the real things, for instance, uh, a classic thing that happens in all the time with lawyers is that uh, you're conducting a business you're paying rent, you're paying salaries, people that work for you depend on you, uh, your family depends on you. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a business. On the other hand, you're, you're doing something you love and it's a passion and you're representing people that have one chance in their whole life. Uh, and and that is, that's everything to them. Yours is just another case. Uh, but it also is what maybe is going to pay the rent. It's also maybe what's going to make sure that you can go on and do the other cases in your office. Um, and there becomes a tension between the two. There comes a point in every case where you have to say to yourself, what's right for the client and what's right for, for me and what's right for the, uh, for my, my business. And you have to, it can never be, what's right for your business. It always has to be what's right for the client, but that is easy to say. It is a very difficult thing 
to carry out in real life, in real time. And, and not only that, when you're making these decisions, they put money on a table and they say, take it or leave it. And if you took it, you could pay the rent for, you know, six months or a year. And if you don't, you could lose the case. Um, and you might get more. But the client is looking to you and the client wants to know what to do. And you know that's not enough money for the client, but zero at the end of a case is also really not enough money for the client. And every trial, every trial is a roll of the dice. It's a very, very difficult. And that kind of process is something we all have to go through, clients, lawyers, and uh, it's not dealt with very much. You know, it is a, a bit in the book, though. And you were saying that you develop the character, the characters develop as you write. Did you know the ending? I know it's inspired by true events, but did you know the ending? No. Before, no. so was I that a surprise to you when you came, came to, or? Yeah, was that a surprise when you? Yes, yes. I did not know what, what the ending was going to be until it happened, uh, and uh, and I and I don't know what the ending of the next one will be until it happens, and I don't know what's going to happen next to these folks, but it's in process. It's meant to be a trilogy. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so, of course, the big important question is. If you could pick any actor, since hopefully this will be made a movie, what would be the actor that represents the main character to you? Just so we can visualize it a little. Well, Paul Newman. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't get Paul to do it. Yeah. Well, we've had so many conversations about this, um, and I, 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 it's he's never done anything like this. It's not what people think of him for him, but I, I, I like Bradley Cooper for the, the role. I don't know why, but I just think he could do it. I th you know, uh, other people have other ideas and we'll, we'll see, we'll see in the end. Uh, it, I, it, it will be uh, somebody that uh, is good that they can get to do it also. You know? Be nice to be able to pick who it is. That would be nice. So maybe just like end with this question for I'm sure many people who have a book in them, they want to get it out. Um, 28 years of writing, why, you know, you didn't give up. What would advice would you give to someone who's aspiring to get their first book out or still writing? It's going to sound strange, but just spit it out. Get it out there. I mean, what I finally learned is if I just spit it out and got it on the paper, I can fix it. And it'll come, you can come back, you can edit, you can change it. Get it out there. It's then that the juices start flowing. Get it out there. Don't overthink it. Let it develop a life of its own. And, and I didn't write for 28 years. I wrote for about two years back then, and then I wrote for about another maybe a, not even a year. Uh, and, and, I, and I was working full-time and still am. Uh, and so, so you know, if you, if you devote yourself to it, you can do it a lot faster than that. But I get it out there. Let it roll. Um, think outside of the box, which is, you know, we're in a time right now where it's a it's an opportunity. It's it's not a good opportunity. It's a bad time, but it's a good opportunity to think outside of the box, to try to pull people together, 
more than ever in any of our lives have we then it's never been like this uh, wherever you come from we need to learn to talk to each other we need to pull together we need to to take care of each other and we need to become more what we know we are yeah more connected well so james um if people are interested in contacting you or finding out or purchasing your book what would be the best way for them to reach out you can always contact me with my my uh email which is easy it's james at bostwick firm.com most all the bookstores in the bay area have the paperback of course the hardbound sold out now it's on amazon um and you can you can get it in paperback kindle audible not in hardbound unless you buy a used one um and uh so it's 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 definitely available uh but i you know and of course my my son works for amazon so i have to give him a plug but but I, I, I believe we ought to go to our local bookstore because the local bookstores is what keeps us reading. It's what keeps us interested. It's where we can go and look and, and it's where we can talk to other people when we can talk, when we can actually do that someday, soon I hope. I agree. Well, I wanna thank you so much, James, for being here today. This is James Bostwick. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, that concludes our virtual program at the Commonwealth Club. You can check upcoming programs at commonwealthclub.org. And uh, everyone, please stay happy or unhealthy. And thank you for watching. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.